Hi, my name's Phil, and uh, we're going to read uh, from Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they couldn't find no ground or for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel heard that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, Yeah, the thing stands fast according to the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes this petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, Dan, um, commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fed, fled from him. Then at daybreak, the break of day, um, the king arose and went to haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you served continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be uh, taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. 
And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. Then Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. Thank you, Phil, for reading that. Who's excited for uh, Daniel 6? Woohoo! A little more woos than that. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike, if I haven't met you before. Uh, it's a joy and honor to be with you this morning. We're going to be walking through this passage, the story that we just read in Daniel 6. And as we jump into this uh, text today, just a reminder of what we've been trying to accomplish by walking through this book of Daniel is, is to really look at the premise of, of what does it mean to live as faithful Christians, faithful followers of Jesus in a context, in a culture that at times can be antagonistic to the gospel. And we we're looking at the story of Daniel and his friends, these exiles who are in what nation? Does anyone remember from the beginning? Babylon, right? And Babylon was this powerful nation, but it was extremely antagonistic to the God of the Jews, Yahweh. And we read about stories throughout of the faithfulness and courage of those followers of Yahweh. And this morning we find one of the most profound and one of the most well-known stories from Daniel. And it's Daniel in the lion's den. And so, Monica, thanks for sharing a little bit about your story and your first engagement with Daniel in the lion's den. And I just want to ask, too, who here is sort of a, a classic Sunday school? Who heard of this story in your Sunday school classes? Yeah, see how popular this story is? Now, as we read it as adults now, it's probably not the best Sunday school story, is it? <laughs> it's pretty graphic. It's, it's pretty um, violent. It's, it's pretty intense when you actually start to comprehend what's going on in the story of Daniel 6. And, and one thing I want to point out, too, is that so often when I, I remember being this, taught this story as a child as well, and so often the focus is Daniel in the lion's den. But to be honest, that's actually a very small part of the story. Daniel 6 is much more about the practices and habits of Daniel which prepared him to be faithful and courageous in the midst of the threat like the, Daniel's, uh, the lion's den. And, and so I want to be looking about some of these things of what can we learn from Daniel's experience leading up to the, the lion's den? What can we experience and learn about God's deliverance in the story? What can we really get to grasp for our context here today? And so, to you, let's just bow in prayer together for a minute. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we praise you that you are a God of deliverance. That you are a God who has come to rescue we see in the story of King Jesus that you came to seek and save the lost. You came to deliver us from death and deliver us from bondage to sin and deliver us from the threat of Satan the deceiver. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who cares, a God who is with us, a God who is able and powerful to bring deliverance. And so we pray that as we grow in our knowledge of who you are, Lord, that it would build this deep courage within us, this courage not just in the moment of crisis, but a courage that is consistent throughout our daily lives and practices that bring honor and glory to your name and represent who you are as the great God of deliverance. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and we ask that you guide us and instruct us by your Spirit to learn from your word this morning. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So a little background here. 
in far as where Daniel is in his journey, Daniel is about uh, 80 years old right now. So this is 60 years after chapter 1. And so Daniel by now is this old man. And just as an encouragement to you all, God can use you, or I shouldn't say you all, but I'll just throw us all in that category to make everyone feel comfortable. If you're old, I don't know the proper way to say that. If you're farther along in life, uh, the beautiful encouragement is God can still use you in powerful and mighty ways, right? And God can still do awesome things through you. So for you, maybe perhaps seasoned people out there, um, I want this story to be a reminder to you first and foremost that God is active in your life here and now, no matter what season you are. And we've seen God's faithfulness throughout Daniel's life, and it does not diminish, it does not deteriorate throughout the years. And so Daniel is this elderly man who's still strong in the Lord and still committed to what God has for him. And we also make a shift here in the story, 60 years later. The empire is no longer Babylonian. The empire is now what? Yeah, the Medes and Persians, right? Medo-Persian. And so we have a different ruler, a different king. We, we have this empire that's known as the Persian Empire, and it's one of the, the largest empires at this point of history ever known to the human history at this point. So it's this massive kingdom. And what's fascinating to me is, is who is really running this Medo-Persian empire? What do we read from the story? It's Daniel, right? The king sort of places Daniel in charge of over things. And I'll, from a perspective of the king, if I was a king, would I want to deal with all the responsibilities and the administration of running an empire? No, if you're a king, what do you want to do? You want to relax and enjoy life and eat well and sleep well and, and enjoy, right? So you're going to put people in charge to oversee all the administration, all the work that you don't want to do. And so this is Daniel's responsibility. Now, here's the first issue we face. And this is very similar to what we see in Daniel's three friends. What happens when these Jews, and I specifically think back to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what happens when these Jews are placed in positions of power? How did the Babylonians respond to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They wanted to take them out, right? They didn't like it. And we see the same theme here in, in Daniel's story with the Persians. They say, why is a non-Persian guy running the empire, right? And what do they want to do? What's their temptation? They want to get rid of him. And they have this strategy to displace Daniel from his leadership. And so what's their plan? How do they go after Daniel? What's their strategy to take him out of his leadership position? What do they attack? Well, first and foremost, what do they attack first? His character, right? But the problem they face in attacking his character is what? He's faultless. There's nothing to accuse him of. And, and just from our perspective too, like when you think about this as a political maneuver, uh, is that political maneuver not the exact same one used today as it was 2,000 years ago? I mean, when we come to election seasons and when we hear so much of the debates within politics, so much of it becomes personal, so much of it becomes character attack, so much of it becomes degrading the other person. Nothing new is under the sun, right? This is the strategy. But the problem they have is they can't attack anything. They can't accuse Daniel of anything within his character. In other words, his integrity is so upright they have absolutely nothing to hold against Daniel. And I think we just need to sit on that fact for a second. Because here's a man who's 80 years old probably. Now for those of you out there who are 80 years old, have you made some drastic mistakes in your life that people could accuse you of? <laughs> I want to see a few more hands in that, right? But this shows you the integrity and character of Daniel, where they, they realized that there was nothing they could accuse this man of from his character. And, and, and I think that is, is such 
a deep encouragement to us. I think that is such a challenge to us. And I know even, even one of the goals in my life is to get to the point where I'm 80 like Daniel and I could say that I never had a massive character mistake, that I had integrity throughout the years, and, and that's definitely one of my goals in life. And, and I often reflect on some of these qualifications that we have as a church for leadership, and I reflect on the, the character qualities of 1 Timothy. Who knows some of them? Uh, your, your character is supposed to be your above reproach, right? What are some other things? You're faithful to your spouse. Yeah, have your own house in order. You're supposed to be self-controlled. You're supposed to be respectable. You're supposed to be hospitable. You're supposed to be able to teach. In other words, you have something to offer. You're not given to drunkenness. You're not violent, but you're gentle. You're not quarrelsome. You're not a lover of money. You have a good reputation with outsiders. And to me, that is something that I want to make sure that when I'm in my 80s, Nothing has changed in my life. And I believe that should be a goal and a calling for each and every one of us as followers of Jesus. It is that if we want to be faithful in our, our ministry to not just the church, but to the co communities around us, these are things that we must commit ourselves to. Because if, if the story of Daniel tells us anything, I think one of the first things it tells us is the importance of character to have any influence. Does that make sense? That, that we, in order to influence anyone, there must be a depth of character behind us. And, and just imagine if, if they came and they accused Daniel and they basically went on this rampage where they had all these flaws they could find in Daniel, would anything have changed in the kingdom? No. Daniel would have been basically accused of doing these things. They would have taken him out of his position of leadership, and Persians would have taken over the empire once again. But it was first and foremost the character of Daniel which led God's mighty act. And, and I have a thought here. Let me find my clicker for a second. It disappeared on me. A thought here from, from Dallas Willard that's really struck me throughout the years. And he wrote a book called The Great Omission. And The Great Omission, the premise of the book is we know the Great Commission, right? And the Great Commission is what? To make disciples of all nations, right? Teaching the baptized. In other words, go on mission with God. We are co-missioned with God. And he wrote a book called The Great Omission. And he said, the Great Omission is that we don't realize the importance of the church of how our spiritual habits and our spiritual disciplines and our character and our integrity play a role in walking the way of Jesus. And he says this. He says, some might be shocked to hear that what the church, the disciples gathered, really needs is not more people, not more money, not better buildings or programs or more education or more prestige or more power, he would say there too. He says, Christ gathered people, the church has always been at its best when it has little or none of these. All it needs to fulfill Christ's purpose on earth is what? The quality of life he makes real in the life of his disciples. In other words, the most important thing for the church to have influence, the most important thing for the church to have any effectiveness in its mission is what? Is the character and integrity of the church. Any amens to that? that that's crucial for us to understand. That's crucial for us to realize that for us to have any influence, any missional advancement in the community around us, if our character and our life doesn't match up with the gospel, there's a deep disconnect. There's a deep disconnect from what God has for us. And so what we begin, I'm going to touch on that point a little bit later in a little bit, but let's jump back into the story. And so what we're going to see is, is Daniel's life of devotion begins to get tested because they can't attack him in his character 
And so they realize the only way they can get at him is by his devotion to his God. And so here's their strategy. What do they want to do? They, they come together and they get the king to agree and make this law that whoever petitions, whoever prays to any God or man for 30 days except for the king, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be thrown to the lines, right? We see from the Babylonian and the Persian Empire, they love their lines. <laughs> and this was sort of this, this reality of if you are against us, you're going to be destroyed by the lines. And so they're trying to regain power, but they realize that their plan is actually going to work. Because when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. In other words, this was a public prayer. He wasn't trying to hide anything. He wasn't going out protesting the law, so to say. He wasn't picketing all these things, but he remained in the disciplines that he had always had throughout his life, through these last 60, 70, 80 years. And just as he'd done daily before this moment, he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Now, here's a wild thing to think about. That all Daniel really had to do was, in a sense, pray in private at this moment. So what is so important about this prayer? What is so important about how he prayed and why he prayed that he was so willingly risking his life? I think it's a very fascinating thing. Well, first and foremost, there's the habit that Daniel has created. There's the, the practice, the discipline of coming before God and enjoying God's presence throughout his entirety of his life. And, and I, I mean, we sung this morning like sweet hour of prayer, right? And it, if you have a prayer practice where you're experiencing the presence of God, to Daniel, this was of utmost importance of experiencing the presence of God. And, and we, we see throughout the story of Daniel leading up to this point, when, when crisis comes in the story of Daniel, what is Daniel's and his friends' responses every time? It is to do what? It is to pray, right? So, so even in Daniel 1, where there's this threat of cultural assimilation and it went too far, what does he do? He prays. When chapter 2 comes and the king threatens to kill all the wise men because no one could interpret his dream, what do they do? They pray. And when Daniel's three friends in chapter 3, when they try to force them to worship down to this golden image, what do they do? They pray. And so whenever Daniel has been in trouble, whenever Daniel has been threatened up to this point, whenever the people of God were threatened in this story, the first thing they resort to is prayer. This deep dependence on a God that they know will deliver them. And so why, why is it such a big deal that he prayed here? Why is it such a big deal? Well, that's part of it. But I want us to point out this thought. If you remember chapter 1, chapter 1 was, was all about compromise. And so chapter 1 was all about a sin that Daniel refused to engage in. In other words, there was cultural practices that, that Daniel said, if I enter into this lifestyle, I will be betraying my God. And we call those sins of commission, sins of acting upon something. But the story here is a different frame. Because the frame of this story is Daniel saying, there are practices that I cannot omit from my life, or I will be disobeying God. I will be going against what God has for me. And we call those sins of omission. Sins that we realize that God is calling us to do something, but we refuse to do it. 
And really, we get this deep sense then of the importance of prayer from the passage here. We get this deep sense that for Daniel, even just to relinquish from prayer for a season to him was sinful. It was going against everything that God called him to be. And so I want to examine this thought of prayer for a second because there's so much of it in Daniel, underlining the story. It's emphasized in Daniel 9, but we'll get there. But I think of a passage that was at the end of Daniel 4 that Lee preached. And at the end of Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar said this. He said, all those who walk in pride, God is able to what? Does anyone remember? God is able to humble, right? And that's exactly what we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life, is all those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Now, there's a deep connection between pride and prayerlessness, isn't there? Because prayerlessness reveals something. Prayerlessness reveals our pride. Because prayerlessness is a way of saying that, God, I don't need you in this circumstance. I don't need your wisdom. I don't need your guidance. I don't need your presence. I can handle this by myself, right? So prayerlessness reveals something. Prayerlessness reveals, let's say it together, pride. And so Daniel, refusing to relinquish prayer from his life is this sense of, I will not become self-dependent. I will not become a source in of myself. I desperately need God even when my life is at stake. And God is going to put us then in situations when we're prideful where we can't overcome in our own power and our own strength. He did this in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He does this in our lives all the time. Where prayerlessness reveals our lack of humility and dependence upon God. And so... King Nebuchadnezzar's life, all those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Is that not true for us too, church? When we walk in pride, God is able to humble us. Because circumstances, situations in life will come that we have absolutely no control or power over. Right? And the story of Daniel is an obvious one, right? Does Daniel have any power or control over lines? No. What's his only hope? A miracle of God, right? And there's times and situations in our own life as well where, where we have these experiences that are completely beyond our control and power. There, there's times in in parenting where you feel like you have absolutely no idea what to do. Anyone there with me? Any parents there, right? You just have no idea. There's times in our marriages and our relationships where we're just hopeless and we need God's restoration. There's times where sickness and disease just riddle our bodies and we have no control or power. And yet, it's when we come in those moments and we realize that our God is a deliverance, that we are humbled, and we're humbled in our devotion to prayer. See, prayer is, is much less about changing your future than it is preparing you for your future. We often think that if, if we pray to God, we'll, we'll pray that our circumstances will change. And what I find fascinating about this story too, it doesn't really tell us what Daniel prayed, but my assumption is, and this I'm going a little beyond the scripture here, but my assumption is he wasn't praying that he wouldn't go to the lion's den. He might have, I don't know, it doesn't tell us. 
But so often we pray for our circumstances to change where really just the practice of prayer and our devotion and dependence upon God is really just to prepare us for what we will endure. And we realize that even in our devotion to God, there will be times where He will deliver us from things we would never want to go through. It's a beautiful story of what's going on. And so there's this, there's this sin of omission that Daniel cannot step into. There's the sin of if I stop this practice, I will be betraying my God. And so let's, let's brainstorm for a quick, quick sec. What are some sins of omission that you can think of in your life? What are some sins that God has called you to do and you have refused out of your pride to not do them? In other words, God has something for you, but you say, no, God, my plan is better. All right, little confession time, little public. You don't have to get too detailed, but what are some things in our lives as a community, as individuals that we wrestle with? Yeah, just a devotion of reading Bible. And, and really, it's just a heart desire. Do you actually want to hear from God? Do you want to know God, right? Yeah, obeying God's command to forgive, right? And, the, and this is, again, where prayer will help. If we're doing the Lord's Prayer, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Yeah, witnessing to others, being a faithful witness to the gospel. And I mean, the story of Daniel 6 is a beautiful story of witness, is it not? Of Daniel being a, a testimony to the power and deliverance of his God through his faithfulness and courage. Yeah, praising him in those difficult seasons where everything seems to be going wrong and yet trusting that God is good. Yeah. A couple more. It's good to confess in church. <laughs> Pardon, Dorothy? Yeah, going to make things right. Yeah. Yeah, Paul's conviction, so far as it depends on you, live it peaceably with all, right? Pardon? Yeah, waiting on God to act. <laughs> you know, I think of the story of Daniel 6 in light of that too. The expectations would have been, okay, God, are you going to deliver me? Okay, the king, he doesn't want me to go to the tomb. Oh, sweet, I'm going to be free. Oh, wait, you're still sending me into the tomb with the lions. Oh, now they're closing a stone over it. Now they're putting a signet ring on it. Like, where are you, God? And then now I'm actually in the lion's den with these hungry lions ready to devour me. And like, I probably would have lost faith and trust in step two, right? And yet you, you, you realize that God's timing is so much beyond ours. And God's wisdom is so much beyond ours. And this is where if we have a life of prayer and a life of dependence upon God, there's that deep trust to be courageous in, through those difficult seasons. And so let's jump back into the story. The consequence comes, and the consequence is the lions, right? So we see this, oh, I went too far here. There we go. The lions, again, the Babylonians, the Persians, they loved lions. This is actually from the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, some of the, uh, the, it's called the Striding Lion. It's this historical artifact from the Babylonian Empire. And I thought it'd be cool just to show you some historical perspectives of the lion there. But basically, the king gives the order. They're thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's facing a crisis where he has to deal with the reality of his death before him. And what's interesting in the story to me is the king. What's the king's desire for Daniel as he throws him into this den? He prays. Yeah, he, said, he, he prays to Daniel's God. And he says, May your king whom you serve continually 
be able to do what? Save you. See, at this point in the story, it's outside of the king's control because with the Medo-Persian um, law system, they did something smart. They did something, oh, sometimes even the king has to function under the law. Because historically, most kings, if you're above the law, you would do whatever you want, right? But the Persians were smart. They said, no, the king has to function under the law as well. And so the king is sort of hands tied. I can't do anything. But he prays for Daniel's God to save him. The, the prayer of a pagan, so to say. I find that very fascinating in the story. And we read, the next morning the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. And he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, fascinating, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's? Do you think he was actually expecting to hear a voice come back? I don't know. It's, it's strange, eh? Like, I'm sure it was his, maybe his guilt that drove him to the, the lion's den. It's pretty obvious he'd seen it many times of what lions can do. But Daniel answered and said, may the king live forever. And it's wild to hear that voice coming from the pit. And, and Daniel reminds the king of something here. He says, my God sent his angel. Again, angels are messengers. They're, they're protectors. And he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. And so Daniel is rescued from the lion's den. And it's this pretty wild story because culturally what's going on right now is culturally there's, there's a sort of this vindication, this vindication of Daniel at this point. Because when we, when we look at some of the ancient legal customs, especially in the Persians and the Iranians, they, they have some very interesting, and, and even this practice um, led up into the 13th century, I think as far as it goes, but there's this ancient legal custom called innocence by ordeal. Has anyone heard of that practice before? We see this sort of in the witch trials at times in the, I think, the 13th century there. But basically, what this concept of, of, of innocence by ordeal would frame is that we're going to put you in a test. And if you pass that test, you are innocent. If you fail that test, you are guilty, right? And, and so you, you see the Persians doing this, and, and they would do it primarily in the practice of fire. And, and so they would get someone to walk through fire, or, or they would even pour molten on someone's chest. And, if, and they had all these different fire ways of basically bringing people through the verge of death. And if you survived, you were innocent. And if you died, you were guilty. And they would do a similar thing with water too. They'd throw people in rushing water if they survived. Crazy things, right? Good thing we have a little bit more of an a established legal system here today, right? <laughs> no, more, no more laughs on that one. <laughs> a little bit better today. But basically, if you survived, it was a sign that the gods had cleared your name that you were innocent. Now, here's the struggle that we're, we're facing here. And, and there's this sort of twist in the story here. Because if Daniel is innocent, and it's his God that saved him, what does that tell the Persians about who the true mighty God is? The God of Daniel. And so there's this, and this is where the story gets pretty um, grim, pretty violent, is what we see in the response of those who were antagonizing Daniel and accusing him. We, we see this horrific reality of them being thrown into the lion's den. 
And it's a way of pointing out that the protection of Daniel was miraculous because as soon as they were thrown in, before their bodies even hit the ground, what did the lions do? They were attacked. They were eaten up. And there's this sad little statement about it was also their wives and their children. Now, now why would kings do this? It was sort of an evil ancient practice. But kings would often destroy the offspring because they didn't want the offspring to grow up and come and have vengeance for their parents or their fathers. And so we see this barbaric sense of justice going on at this point. But the, the major thing that this section of the story is that when Daniel is there and alive and awake this me- the next morning for, for this, this Medo-Persian empire, for ancient Near Eastern, it would have been a sign that God has cleared this man's name. He's not guilty, but he is innocent. And if the God who vindicated him, then this is the God we're supposed to worship. And so we see this, this wild shift in Darius right now. And this is what we hear from Darius. And, and really we're, we're reading this almost a sermon this deeply theological sermon from this pagan king. And he says this, he says, he wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth. In other words, who is this letter for? Who is this sermon for? For the world. For all empires. For all nations. Again, King Darius was basically the leader of the greatest empire at this time. And this is what he says to them. He says, peace be multiplied to you. And I think that's such a weird thing to say after you just threw a bunch of people to be eaten in a lion's den, but must have been a turn of heart or something, right? Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. What was the first decree in the story? That everyone has to worship the king Darius, right? That was the first decree. Everyone worship me. Here's the new decree. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before who? The God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lines. Pretty wild thought, isn't it? Now, there's a lot of theology here. It's pretty wild to think about it. And just a few thoughts. I mean, I make a decree that all people, in other words, who is this God for? This God is for all nations right? Jesus under the new covenant is going to make that so obvious to the Jews. Those who believed was, was no, the, the gospel, the good news of God's deliverance and God's mercy and God's grace is for all people. It's to be spread through all the nations. God is a, a God for the world. But not only that, I love this passage too, for he is a living God. And I love this passage because if you remember when we go back to Daniel 2, and those, uh, all, all the wise men and magi, they couldn't interpret the dream. And they said, not even the gods could interpret this dream for you, Nebuchadnezzar, because the, the gods don't care about our existence. The gods aren't part of our world. They don't care about what we're going through. And yet this concept that, that even Darius brings up is God is a living God. In other words, our God is a God who is actively involved in this world a God who is actively engaged with his people. And so this true God is a a living God, enduring forever. What does that tell us about God? He's eternal, right? The Alpha and the Omega, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. In other words, is Darius' kingdom going to be destroyed? One of the biggest empires this world has ever known, and yet destruction, right? 
And yet the kingdom of God, and this is where I love when Jesus brings up the kingdom of God language, the, the kingdom of God will last into eternity. And his dominion, his sovereignty, his power shall be to the end. Now here's the character of God. This is what he acts upon. It says he delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven on earth just like he saved Daniel from the lion's den. Amen? To me, that is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of God. And I often wonder, well, how did Darius get this depth of theology? How did he get to this point where he understood so intrinsically to the point he was able to articulate this depth of theology behind God. And I'm sure it was because after Daniel was released, and I'm sure it would have been Daniel's faithful presence in the empire throughout the ages, throughout the years, but it would have been, okay, your God has delivered you. Darius is going to be asking a lot of questions of Daniel, isn't he? And Daniel becomes this faithful witness who takes this opportunity that God had given him to demonstrate this, this beautiful, courageous act to show the beauty of who God is. It's a wild story, isn't it? And the last, the last verse in verse 28, it talks about how Daniel was still part of King Darius's reign and also Cyrus. Now, there's a lot of commentators and, and scholars who sort of wrestle because um, you can actually use the Hebrew to talk about how Cyrus and Darius was the same purpose, person. And for those of us who know our Bible really well, when we get to the last book of the Hebrew Bible, what's the last book of the Hebrew Bible? Does anyone know? Malachi is the last book in our English Bible, but for a Hebrew Bible, what's the last book of the Hebrew Bible? Corinthians, or uh, Chronicles, okay? And at the end of Second Chronicles, we read about Cyrus, who is the one who basically released the Jews, so that they could rebuild the temple, so that they could go free. And so if this is the same person of Darius and Cyrus as the same king, what Daniel has accomplished here is absolutely story-altering for the people of Israel, is it not? Where it was literally them experiencing exile in the Babylonian empire to being able to go to regather to try and rebuild the temple. It's wild, but... That's sort of a caveat. I wasn't going to share that, but I did anyway. But for you Bible nerds out there, you'll might appreciate it. We can talk about it later. Let me, let me close this up. There's a lot to process here. Let me, let me just close with one final thought. The thought I want to close with from the story in Daniel 6 is that influence comes through a courageous trust in God demonstrated in spiritual practices, okay? Now, now, who here wants to be an influential person? I hope we all do. Maybe, I, let's see some hands. I know some of you are slow, but we, we want to influence. We want to either help people or assist people, or whether it's our kids or our friends or our neighbors, we want to have an influence on people's life so that their life can be better, but, but how do we actually bring about influence? For Daniel in the story, especially in chapter 6, the, the influence that Daniel was able to have was first and foremost found in him doing what activity? Prayer, right? His devotion to prayer, day after day, season after season, king after king. This development of prayer, this spiritual practice that he emulated time and time again, this enveloped in him this deep sense of courageous trust. Where when he was so deeply tied to the presence and power of God, he could enter into the most difficult of circumstances with a deep trust that the practices he had we're not fruitless. And this is important for us because 
When, when we look at this, this cultural moment again, what's in Canada? Again, a big theme of the, the first few chapters of Daniel was to make sure that we're not being influenced by a, a culture and society that degrades God, right? That we are influenced in the point where we're being taken over from our commitment to the gospel, our commitment to what God has for us. And, and this chapter 6 reminds us that it's not enough just to step back and not do anything. In other words, our, our Christian life isn't about what we're avoiding, but it's also what we are doing, what we are practicing, what we are living out. And, and it's those practices that, that truly have this transformative nature and this influence. And, and I love this, this concept that um, I, I heard it first from John Mark Comer, who's a pastor, and he said it like this. He said, all of spiritual formation is counterformation. In other words, all our practices that are forming us into the way of Jesus and person and character of Jesus are all countering against something. And unless we're countering against the influence of this world, we will be influenced by it. But it's only when we start practicing practices that actually bring about the life of God that we will have influence. And so this influence is, is so, so crucial for us. Now, none of us probably are going to be in a position and place like Daniel, where he's literally leading the biggest empire in the world, right? But we all have spheres of influence. We all have families. We all have neighbors. Some of us have kids. Some of us have spouses. And our calling first and foremost is to just be people of influence in those realms. And so my encouragement to you is, is to take that calling seriously on a very daily basis, where unless you have those habits and formations developed in your life, when those moments of crisis come, you're not going to be ready for them. Because again, well, as I said before, prayer isn't necessarily about praying for God to change your circumstances, but prayer is first and foremost God preparing you for those circumstances and to be ready for what's next. And so Daniel's courage and his faithfulness was, was, was shown in what got thrown him into the lion's den, not necessarily the lion's den itself. And so let me close with this. I already said I was going to close, but I was planning on preaching for two hours today, just to warn you, there's so much in this passage. Hold, hold out with me a little bit longer. Because if we're going to influence through our spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines that creates courage, what is it that's actually going to form and muster that courage and trust in God in our life? Because we, we can't just muster that in our own life, can we? It's not something we can create and fabricate in our own life. And, and I think the only way to answer this question is to look at Daniel 6 and the story of Daniel with, with our hope of deliverance through Jesus Christ. Amen? Yes, we can learn from the story of Daniel, but unless we get a grasp of the, the entirety of the story of Scripture fulfilled in Jesus Christ, I don't think we're able to grasp the fullness of what's going on. So, so how do we have a courageous trust in God? Well, well first of all, let, let's just look at some comparisons here between Daniel and Jesus. What are some char characteristics of the story of the end of the life of Jesus and the story of Daniel? What are some sim similarities? Yeah, the stone coming over, right? Jesus was in the tomb. A stone was literally covered, right? Yeah, they both had a very strong prayer life, right? Daniel was devoted to prayer. Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? A devotion to prayer, a dependence upon the power of God. They were found faithful with God and man. There was nothing about their character and integrity that could be questioned or challenged. 
Yeah, they were both willing to lay down their life for what God had for them, right? And take that a next step further, and what happened to them as a result of that, they were both vindicated, and they were both victorious in a sense over death. Now, Daniel would ultimately die, but the wild thing about that is, yes, Daniel dies, or Daniel is in the lion's den, but the sad part of that story is what happens to everyone who accused him. They all died. The beautiful thing about Jesus' vindication and Jesus' victory over death is that it actually welcomes the reality of resurrection life, right? Wild. Yeah, Edith, you had something. Yeah, they were both deeply opposed by their culture, right? Yeah, they both ushered in new kingdoms. That's a wild thing to think about, hey? <laughs> And Darius almost forecast the eternal kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that deep dependence upon God because they could trust Him, right? And here's the courageous thing. When I think about it, I mean, there's a lot more that we could say. We could talk about Jesus, friends coming to the tomb, all these things. There's a lot more. But when we think about what Jesus has accomplished for us, Jesus literally faced the, the lion's den of death, didn't he? And he came out victorious. And... There's this wild description of Satan in Scripture as well. That Satan is like what? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I look at the story of Jesus and I say, well, when we look at the story of Jesus, we see that he has defeated the power of sin, right? Sin no longer has any power over us because God's forgiveness comes through the crucifixion of Jesus. There, there's no longer a threat and power of death because Jesus has risen from the dead, amen? We got to start getting prepped for Easter, right? Jesus has risen from the dead. There's no more threat of death over any of us. God will deliver. And also, Jesus has defeated the power of Satan, the roaring lion who, who's looking for someone to devour, right? Jesus took upon the death of the lion so that he could be raised up victorious as the lion of Judah, so to say. And so when we think about those three categories, what really is there in life that could ever threaten that courageous trust? If sin, death, and the evil one himself have absolutely no power over us, what could take us from courageous trust to go wherever God has called us to? And the answer is, Nothing. Amen, church? Amen. Okay, let's pray to that extent. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we, we deeply thank you that you are a God of deliverance. That you are a God of mercy. That you are a living God who hears our cries and knows our circumstances and knows our struggles. And yet you are a God who comes to restore and to redeem and to deliver and to rescue and to save. And Lord, we, we know that in our lives, we know that as we even look to the story of Jesus and as we look to the character of Jesus um, and, and Daniel even, we know that, um, Lord, our lives are not perfect. We, we know that there are circumstances and situations that you have placed us in that we have failed you. And yet we thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy to restore us. And so we pray that in the lives that we go through and the struggles and trials that we go through and the temptations that we face and all the things that, that try to form us against who you have called us to be, Lord, Lord, I pray that you would empower us with your spirit to develop practices and habits of devotion and discipline that form us into the character of you, God.
that create in us a deep dependence on your wisdom, on your guidance. So that when these moments of crisis come in our life, we wouldn't be caught off guard, we wouldn't be unprepared, but there'd be seasons of trusting you, seasons of courageous interaction with you that would bring us through the the greatest threats we could ever face. And we thank you, God, that in these greatest threats of, of sin and death and the Satan, the deceiver, Lord, even in those greatest threats, we can claim victory because we know you, Jesus, and that you have delivered us from these things. And so I pray that we would be courageous, that we would trust you as we make daily decisions of courage so that we can truly have a deep influence on the world and people around us so that your kingdom would come, so that your will would be done and that we would see a peace and shalom and joy come among our community. We thank you, gracious God, for this gift. We thank you that you are a God of deliverance. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.